All right, let's go ahead and get started with our message here. If you open up your Bibles, again, we continue our chronological study of the Lord's ministry. We have yet another event that all three synoptic Gospels cover. Uh, we'll start with Matthew's account, Matthew 16, verses 21 through 26. And then Mark covers this in Mark 8, verses 31 through 37. And Luke covers this in Luke chapter 9, verses 22 through 25. And I'll read each one of these to you as we look at Christ foretelling his death and resurrection and his rebuking of Peter that we alluded to this morning. Starting in Matthew's account, Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. <clears throat> then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense to me, unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited, if he shall gain the whole world, and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Uh, you might feel the urge to grind your teeth, because we have two more very difficult questions to consider. For what is a man profited, if he shall gain the whole world, and lose his own soul? We would certainly never say on the outset that we are certainly looking to uh, profit the whole world, to gain the whole world, but we do that with our actions. When we aim to fit in, when we aim to be popular, when we aim to put the pleasures of this life first, when we aim to put our bank account before the Lord, perhaps. And the Lord says here that whosoever will uh, save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. There's something before that that he says that I find really intriguing. As he says unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense to me. Stick with me. This is what is an offense to Jesus. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So this follows very closely with what we talked about this morning. When we follow after self-pleasure, when we follow after worldly pleasure, when we follow after the pleasing of men, we are an offense to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are His, and we are to live like we are His, we are offensive to Him when we put the world before Him. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is of any man. This speaks to any man at any stature of life any level of accomplishment in life, any race, any nationality, any level of health, any level of sickness, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark's account begins in Mark 8, verse 31. Isaac, could you turn the thermostat up a couple notches? You can see my breath up here. Mark 8, starting in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, 
Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And if you're looking at the outlines, you'll see some of these things that are underlined are the things that we don't see in the other gospel accounts. And that line in particular, for my sake and the gospels, is only in Mark's account, not in Matthew's and not in Luke's. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And that, of course, is the second question. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Lastly, let us consider Luke's account. Luke chapter 9, verses 22 through 25. <clears throat> it begins saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. If you mark your Bibles, you might want to highlight that word. Daily. This isn't a one-time offering. This is the problem with accepting Jesus and reciting some prayer and going to the mourner's benches. It doesn't happen every day. It's a one-time occurrence in which you've pledged yourself to Jesus. Did he save you? Well, I let him. Did he save you? Then you live now every day for him. Every day. It's not a public display of affection for the Lord that you would come forward one time and make like you did all the work. If he has indeed saved you, take up your cross daily and follow after him. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged? Phrased a little different here. What is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Heavenly Father, as we consider these texts, we ask, Father, you'd work in our hearts. Soften our hard hearts, Lord. Remove the flesh from the equation that we might truly hear you this day. Give us strength, Father, that we take these messages that we've heard today, that we take these conversations and opportunity for prayer with us as we leave this place. That we not leave it behind as some vacant cookie-cutter memory leave it behind as some Bible saving our seat, but that we take it with us. This was our feeding for the week. Father, let us treat it as such, that we would take it with us. This is our strength to get through what lies ahead. We ask, Father, that we come again craving more, desiring more, that we long and truly be hunger for Thee. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really just two points I want to bring out. What He taught and how He taught it. What he taught, how he taught it. And there's a lot, it's going to feel like a Sunday school lesson. There's a lot of different scriptures that we're going to recite. But there's, this is important. We're now to the, to the point in his ministry where he's confessing openly, as our text says, the end game, the end purpose to his ministry, what he's come to do. Now, as they've traversed the map behind me, and, and I've changed this one so you can't see it anymore as we follow the footsteps of the Lord, we know that he's been pursued Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, all of these have been pursuing after him. Some of his own have been willing to, to slay him as he's come out. And they said, surely this isn't the carpenter's son. And they were willing to throw him from the mountain. These things have already happened. He's now telling them what is going to happen. He's now telling them the purpose to his suffering, the purpose to his death. He'd intimated his death in various symbols, uh, but how he spoke of it, now he spoke of it rather, very openly. 
Here are some of the other times in which he's made allusion to it that we've seen throughout this study. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? This is one of the earlier times in which the Jews were requesting a sign of authority. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. They were speaking, of course, of a physical building. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Kind of a, a bewildering moment here as we go back to the beginning of John, which was written after the crucifixion. And John says here, this thing was said, we didn't really know what it meant. But we're now to the point in our studies where he's starting to teach it. He's starting to tell them, this is going to happen. I am the temple that will be torn down by these very Jews, these very ones who laid, laid out the challenge to begin with, to prove it. A chapter later, John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse, and neither does the ever so popular John 3.16, does not say that Jesus wouldn't perish. It says those that believe in him wouldn't perish. It says later in that same chapter that man prefers darkness rather than light, that man wouldn't prefer him because he was the light. But he had to be lifted up, as it says here in verses 14 and 15, just as that brazen serpent was. They had to look upon him. They had to truly see to be healed. John 6, 51, we just covered this not too long ago. Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Matthew 9, verses 14 through 15. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but the disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them and then shall they fast one of my favorite verses in the bible that verse right at the end of john 16 also talks about him being called home or him being removed from this earthly ministry in the physical sense he's constantly been pointing that this is coming matthew 12 verses 38 through 41 then the certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. This is one of the more recent times in which they demanded a sign of his authority. And he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Could you imagine being these disciples? Now, now we're not too far removed from when they were thinking about bread, and he was trying to teach them about leaven. We're not so far removed when they were thinking about the taste of the final product that they failed to perform the right work and bring it with them, as he's teaching of the dangers of the poison of the doctrine of man. That's another way of saying the same thing, is it not? This just happened not too long ago. Imagine how shocked they are now hearing the Lord talk about His dying at the hands of these. 
whom we would easily call enemies, but such were we. Especially Peter. Peter here repeats the same temptation that Satan had offered up when he tried to detour Christ from the cross. Think back to Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto them, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. He must take the cross before the crown. If he were to take the crown first, he goes alone. We had to be atoned for. The value of the blood that these new translations remove is our very atonement. It is our very salvation they seek to wipe from the word of God. Jesus says it must be so. Simon Peter, just as Satan. No, 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 no. That's not necessary. It's, it's almost like a, a hippie coming in and saying, there's no need for this. There's no need for lies and dying and, and hurt feelings. There is a need. Because man prefers darkness rather than light. Do darkness and light go hand in hand? Are they partners in life? Do they get along? Isaac is your pew light, but Sharon's dark? Of course not. They war with one another. When these lights come on, the darkness fleeth. And when this light came on the scene, darkness was woke all over the place. Talk about woke. There's some ugliness in this story about his ministry. And I pray that we've seen it. They're demanding a sign. And even Simon Peter starting to give in. You don't need to die. Now think of it from Jesus' standpoint. I've been teaching this all along, he says. I have explained to you that Jonas was the sign. That I must perish, that you would live, that I must be lifted up. Do you remember the middle of the night meeting with Nicodemus when I said that I must perish, that I was sent to perish, that I can't exist here for all time, that I have the work of the Father to attend to. Satan is obviously using Peter to be a stumbling block in Christ's path of obedience. Satan was to use Peter again to hinder Christ's work in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy fail, faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Not going to do it, Isaac. I'm not going to do it. There's a joke there. But listen, the reality of this, these verses. Simon Peter was very dear to the Lord. He's what uh, theologians refer to as being in the inner circle, very close. Simon Peter, James, John, sometimes Andrew's lumped in there as well. And so, yes, yeah, Simon puts his foot in his mouth a lot, but Simon's always talking. And if you're the one who's usually doing the talking, you're going to find your foot in your mouth every once in a while. But the situation for, for Simon that the Lord is describing here is exactly what Satan wants to do with your life. What have you found your peace in? This, this is the twisted revelation of who Satan really is. Uh, he's not simply desirous that you would rebel against God. Uh, he's totally content with you rebelling against God. But then he's going to be quick to pull the rug out from underneath you too once you've started to depend on him. Once you've started to depend on the world. Once you've started to cave in on certain principles that you know to be biblical truth. And then suddenly that rug is pulled out from underneath you. Your life is left in a disaster. A cavernous mess of emptiness 
and unholiness. For what? What was your strength in? Was your strength in a person? Divorce happens. Was your strength in money? Houses burn. Banks crooked. You've heard of Enron, right? You can lose your money overnight. Is your strength in your brother? Is your strength in your father? There's not been a man yet who hasn't been perished, except for two that were called home. All will die. You're not called to have a strength on anything but the Lord. Let me read the text again to you. If any man will come after Jesus Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You're not even called to have a strength in yourself. You're called to find your strength in the Lord. And there is no strength in anything else. If we talk about the true definition of strength, like we talked about power this morning, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the universe except for God. Satan hath desired to have you. Think of Job. We have a, I like to take this verse and put it beside Job because in Job we have a literal picture of some kind of council hall of sorts in which the Lord is meeting with whoever he's meeting with and in comes Satan. Doesn't knock. You know how Satan is. And he desires to go after something. He desires to sift something like wheat. It's transparent there. And God says, have you considered Job? We made reference Wednesday night to the word that he used there. His perfect servant, his complete servant. Throughly furnished, 2 Timothy 3.17. Servant. Would we read that and say, well, God sent Satan after Job? God let Satan go after Job. And we can even read in Job, and I challenge you to do so this week, that the Lord gave specific parameters as to what Satan could do and what Satan couldn't do. Satan's challenge to God was that he won't, he won't back down. You've got a, such a hedge about him. He's such a beloved saint. He would never curse you unless you let me take some of those things away. Satan makes a pretty good point. There's some of us in this very room that we would never curse God unless he took our cars, our money, our spouse. Oh, and that, that dreaded thing we fear most as Americans, our Bibles and guns. Oh, if Satan's allowed to take those, well, then we'd curse God and die, just like Job's wife encourages him to do later. Listen, beloved, it's not about what you have. It's not about what you have done or what you will do. It's about the Lord. He's the true strength, the true power, the true deliverance, the true, the true promise keeper, if you want to put it that way. He is the true stability. Perpetuity only lies in Christ Jesus and nowhere else lest ye be lost. And when Satan has a desire to have you, he's willing to face God himself to express that desire. I wonder sometimes how many of the portfolios Satan, speaking in the flesh, Satan presents to God the Father of our young people. I desire to have such and such teenager. I desire to have such and such nine-year-old. I desire to twist their lives up in pornography, to twist their lives up in drugs, to twist their lives up in alcoholism, to twist their lives up in gambling, to just mangle their lives real good. And looking at it on the surface, the Lord sees this is a reputation. 
the Lord's in control of all things. He has every right to say, you can, you can do that, but you can't do this. You can't, if they're His, you can't stake their salvation. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? There are no good people. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. God allows these things because we've put our strength in them. He says, yes, you can mangle up their financial lives. They're too dependent on it. It'll just drive them back to me. Is that not what happened with Job? It'll drive them back to me. By the end of Job, he's more blessed than he was in the beginning of Job. But he lost all his children. Yeah, he did. He didn't replace those children. He still suffered loss. He still had heartache. But he knew God better than he had ever known God before. That's what this whole thing is all about. This entire journey. All of the heartaches that each one of us has brought into this room. It's about finding Him. It's about knowing Him. It's about truly understanding Him. You've all seen the trust test where you put your arms out and you close your eyes and you fall backwards and some clown like Isaac drops you. He's already grinning. I had to point out it would be him. That's finding who you can depend upon. right? You probably wouldn't let him do it twice. The Lord isn't necessarily some close your eyes and fall backwards test. But He wants you to know where He is. He wants you to feel His presence. He wants you to know that He's the only source of true comfort. He's put people in our lives that love us, that care for us, that have good intentions, and have maybe even our best interests in mind. But He's also allowed the devil, who's desirous of you and your reputation, to spoil it a little bit. That every time we put our trust in something other than God, we take a real chance. We take a real chance. Pardon the pun that you're going to get burned. Every single time. Second thing we need to consider is how he taught it. This is what he taught. But it's very important to consider how he taught it, especially in light of what we just talked about with 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 this morning. It says in our text, And he spake that saying, and this is in Mark's account, Mark 8, And he spake that saying openly. Openly. This wasn't a secret. He talked to all the disciples about what was coming with the crucifixion. And then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Christ rebuked Peter and then taught the disciples the importance of the cross in the life of the believer. Why was this important? What Jesus was teaching was immediately being distracted from by Simon Peter's words and actions. That phrase that I've used before about casting a shadow on the gospel. Do you see Peter's shadow cast upon the gospel truth here that Jesus must perish, that he must be offered up as the perfect sacrifice, that he must, as we see in 3.14 and 15 of John, that he must be lifted up, that all that would look to on him and would believe would be saved and kept and preserved? Simon Peter's comments here saying that this doesn't have to be the case is just like Satan saying, surely you won't die from eating of this fruit. It's an introduction of question. Is that our place to introduct questions into the Lord's ministry? To His truths? This is how we've gotten where we are in the last 400 years. As we look at the trail of blood timeline that we had rolled out here a couple of months ago, 
I made the comment that really in the last four or five hundred years is when we've gotten all the harlot's daughters and all these things. It's really when all the confusion has come into play. That means for 1,600 years there was essentially the Catholic Church persecuting everybody else. And then, bam, a big split of every idolatry and every heresy and every single untruth or kind of truth that this could happen and this could be. We've got religions now that focus on multiple spouses and, 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 and same-sex marriages and all of these things. There's creepy churches in Texas with magic closets. And I don't hope for you to know what that means. I'd rather every one of you tell me you don't know what that means. Because it's a shameful thing. It is a shameful thing, and it's happening in our schools as well. A magic closet is where you can go, if mommy sent you to school as a little boy, it's where you can go and safely change your clothes to be whatever it is you want to be. There's no place for that in the Lord's church. You know what there's place for in the Lord's church? The truth. God made male and female. God made the universe. You will not see the kingdom of heaven unless you be born again. We do all these things to preserve everybody's feelings. You won't be saved if your feelings are preserved. You won't be saved if you're told to feel good about what you are. You won't be saved if you're told you're perfect. Why would you want to be saved? You're perfect. It's a lie of the Satan. Christ rebuked Peter and then taught his disciples. <coughs> And he illustrated with Simon Peter's words and actions that we are to never cast a shadow on the gospel. That we are literally, as it says in our text, to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow after him. It's very easy for Christians today to get caught up in hurt feelings and bruised sensibilities. We've got books written on it. We've got YouTube channels dedicated to it. This keeps us from personally living as we should, but then also causes for us to hesitate when called upon to execute the appropriate church discipline in future instances. If any hesitation is bad hesitation for the church, any hesitation leads to the sins that were in the Corinthian church that Paul had to deal with, and possibly sins that we may be harboring as well. We shouldn't hesitate to execute the judgment that we've been entrusted to, those keys, that authority that we just talked about last week. Take note of how the Lord teaches here. He spake that saying openly. Peter took him and began to rebuke him, but when he had turned about and looked to his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Some today would say, well, Jesus should have taken Simon Peter aside to a quiet place with just him and the Lord. And he should have held his hand and you know, maybe just politely rubbed it on the back so that he, he knew he was in a safe place. And he should have told Simon Peter how he felt about what was said. Now, I don't want the supreme ruler of the universe to tell me how he feels about anything I say. Because it probably won't be good. What I want the supreme ruler of the universe to tell me is the truth and how I should live. Because he's the judge. He's the lawgiver. He's the king. I want to know how I'm supposed to act as a Christian, as a preacher, as a father, as a pastor. I don't want the Lord to harbor truth to spare my feelings or to slow truth down so I don't get upset at Him. I want the truth because the truth will set me free according to what Scripture says. 
They didn't go into some quiet little magic closet and sing kumbaya, and then when everything was settled and feelings were all calm, oh, by the way, I didn't really appreciate what you said out there. You kind of embarrassed me. That's not our Lord and Savior. I imagine when he said, Lazarus, come forth. I, I mean, it was loud. I just, I picture it being loud. It didn't have to be, but I picture it being loud. And for whatever reason, I picture it is finished being pretty loud too. And there's a whole lot of things going on in the globe when that happens. But I picture it being good and loud. That not a soul there that came to spit on him that day had any spit left in him after they heard it is finished. Because it was done. It was done. This wasn't a private scolding, nor even an open but vague tongue lashing. We're good at that as well. But rather a specific admonition before the brethren of the church. Did you know that we're called to that as well? That's what church discipline is. Church discipline isn't me sitting down and telling somebody they're out of line. Now, we, we know that there's the rebuking, the reproving, the removing, or the restoring. We know that. We've taught on that before. But that church discipline doesn't just happen between the pastor and the member or between the pastor and the men and the member. The entire church is to be involved. And as Paul writes to the Corinthians, it's for their betterment that they see that this is the will of God, that this is the truth of God, that the church is accountable for it, that the church upholds it, and the church stands for it, and the church has edification in mind when they exercise it. That all involved know the love of the Lord, and they know the fear of the Lord as well. What's he say before the church, before the brethren? Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Oh, he drug Simon Peter through the mud. Oh, his character will never be the same again. <laughs> not so. He handled the truth. You savor the things of men and not of God. This is in air. He rebuked Simon Peter firmly and directly for the church's sake and in front of the church so that they know too. You are not to savor the things of man before God. If you're not here today because you're working, that is something to be ashamed of because you put something before God and that's work. That's a thing of man. Are we faithful that God will provide? Do you not tithe because the kids need the money? Well, then do you tithe beforehand, right off the top? Do you do the same with time? It's something to think about. And if you don't, hear the words of the Lord. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. This is the exact process that we are to practice. These are the exact sins that we should address. What keeps us from attending? Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What keeps us from tithing? Thou savorest not the things that, uh, that be of God, but the things that be of men. What keeps us, Lord, help us, from praying? Thou savorest not the things of God, but the things of men. You are in this room. You know there are others in this room hurting. If you choose to leave here this day without giving them a hug, letting them know that you're praying for them, or maybe stopping and praying with them before you leave this room, you now savor us the things of man before the things of God. You're here for a reason. The exact cast of folks in this room are here for that exact reason, to be encouraged and edified, to be loved on, I don't have to list the hurts for you to know because I would 
I would imagine if I asked you to raise your hand if you were hurting, every hand in this room would go up. Everyone you're sitting beside or behind or in front of is hurting in one way or another. Have you prayed for one another? Have you embraced one another? We're long past the fear of COVID, I think, in this room. Have you hugged on one another? I tell Clark I love him every time I see him. You know, and, and, and probably the first couple times it felt weird, but now it would feel weird if I didn't. And I think Isaac does the same thing with Clark. And Steve and I make sure we shake hands every time we're in the services together, before and after. When's the last time that you hugged on one another? Just put your arms around somebody's neck and just said, I love you. Not because you're called to, but because you're permitted to. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny that little piece of himself that would be too embarrassed to hug somebody. Let him deny that little piece of himself that says, I've got to hold that tithe just in case I need it. I can't go today because something might come up. Car might break down. Cars do break down. Things do come up. Come to church. Put the Lord first. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Bearing the cross means dying to self. Bearing Christ's reproach and crucifying the world and the flesh as we follow him in obedience. It means taking nothing with you and putting all of you, all of your faith, all your belief, all your hope in Christ Jesus. On the cross itself. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We could go through that entire song. We could write verses to that song. But nothing but the blood of Jesus will always be the answer. Peter was to learn that suffering and glory always go together. 1 Peter chapter 4, his own words, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Which is to try you, he says. As though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, listen to this, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Our nation's working really hard to make sure Christians are ashamed. They're working really hard to make, and, and if you'll notice, they're not working near as hard as actually punishing you, actually putting you through uh, pain. It's the shame factor for Christians. That's the worst. And now they're trying to cause us to be ashamed of ourselves for being Christians. Ashamed of ourselves for being glad Roe v. Wade was overturned. Ashamed of ourselves for not truly believing in global warming or overpopulation of the earth. Ashamed of ourselves for this, that, and the other thing. Why are we so limp-wristed, so weak-minded, so broken-hearted that we allow the world to shame us? We are more than conquerors. There is therefore no more condemnation. What does the world have to shame us over? We have an eternal inheritance 
as joint heirs with Christ Jesus, we are as royalty. The world has nothing to shame us for. They're not going to come to you and say, I desperately need for you to give me the gospel. But when they come to you and try to shame you, you can point that out. You desperately need what I have. You need salvation. You need to be delivered. You don't need your strength to come from the things that it's wrapped up in right now. You need the Lord Jesus. You need peace. And it wouldn't hurt us to walk around like we have peace if we actually know the Lord Jesus. And Peter goes on to say, But let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. The very next chapter, Peter says in the first verse, the elders, 1 Peter 5.1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. A little bit later in the same chapter, verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10, be sober, be vigilant. <laughs> I say that wrong every time. Be sober, be, be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. He says here the same thing, essentially, that Paul wrote to Timothy about there at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the wonderful blessing is he doesn't hide the truth. He says here, this is Peter's version of what we just read in Luke 22, 31 through 32, when the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. And there's the difference. He says the same thing. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking and desiring to have you that he may sift you as wheat seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. What Jesus tell him? I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Simon Peter gives the same truth years later. It is by faith. Victory and faith, hand in hand. Peter's confession of faith come, came from the Father, as we saw last time, Matthew 16, 17. Not from the gossip of the crowd. Who do they say that I am? Whom do you say that I am? Peter had very different answers for both. But Peter's confusion here originated with the devil. Is it wrong that Simon Peter didn't want to see Jesus perish? Would it be wrong for us today to say we don't have a desire to see Jesus perish? If, if, if this were to happen in our day and age, would it be sinful for us to say we don't want to see him die? It would, because this is the will of the Father. This was his plan. This is what Jesus had consistently said from the very beginning. Why I have come. Why I have come as a man, taking upon the form of man, 100% God, 100% man, is to conquer death. How do you conquer death? You bring it life. And that's exactly what he did. Peter reveals in his actions that he wanted the glory, but not the suffering that leads to glory. Dear believer, this may be where you have found yourself today. I've been there myself. 
You believe in Jesus as your Savior, but you do not find value in understanding His Word more fully. Hear the rebuke of the Lord in our text. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. What are you saving it for? If you're not saving it for Him, what are you saving it for? Put that in writing as you answer these difficult questions tonight. And I urge you to do this. What are you saving it for? Is there a better place to invest your life than in Christ Jesus? The same shall save it. When he says here, But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? What advantage, as Luke says, shall he have if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Essentially, this second question is asking you, what is the value of your soul? What do you value it at? Can you be purchased? We just talked Wednesday about Esau uh, despising his own birthright. Is that how you view your own soul? You ever talk to some of these younger generations that the, the world keeps telling us are lost causes? These younger generations that we're told to call millennials and we're told to say they have no hope and we're told that you, you know, since giving them the gospel, they're not going to receive it. Have you ever actually talked to any of them? You ever asked one, how do you value your soul? What, what value do you assign to it? If you don't have that conversation with them, the world will. The devil seeking to sift them as wheat. Devour them is his goal. He's probably already had that conversation because you're too afraid to hurt their little feelings. You're too ashamed to embarrass them. Mom and Dad, that's your job. And if you want pointers, Isaac says, I'm real good at it. You want to embarrass your kids because you want them to see themselves as God sees them. You don't want them to see themselves as the world does. They're candy to Satan. Candy-covered wheat. And he's just roaming around, licking his lips. Lions have lips. Seeking to devour them. He can't get enough of it. They fall into all the snares. Drugs, pornography, gambling's real big now. How do you value your soul? For a moment of pleasure? A week of pleasure? A month of pleasure? That's usually Satan's hot button. It can make you happy for a few minutes. Can I have your birthright? Can I have your soul? 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-3 through 3, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Read Peter's two epistles and see how much he says about suffering and glory. He talks about it an awful lot. The end of his life, I believe it was Peter that was crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was, uh, he didn't feel equal with the Lord to, to suffer and die the same way. It was either Peter or Paul, but I believe it was Peter. And his epistles are all about suffering and glory. And it was Peter who delivered that famous sermon there in Acts. 
And it was Peter who was at the forefront when they locked him in the prisons for preaching in the temple. And they gave the Lord praise because they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. Peter knew about suffering. He can get such a bad name for denying the Lord Jesus. Peter was the one who wanted to walk on water. Peter is the one who wanted to know more, more about Jesus. Peter's the one that it was revealed unto that Jesus was the Son of God. We become disciples of Jesus Christ by surrendering our all to Him, taking up our cross and following Him. How can we truly live unashamedly of our Savior and do anything less? A disciple follows. That's literally what the word disciple means. If you consider yourself a Christian, you, by definition, are a follower, a disciple of Christ. The name Christian was slander given to Christians because they followed in the way. They followed after Jesus, the Messiah. Yes, there is suffering in taking up a cross to follow Jesus. Nobody would ever take up a cross and not expect suffering. Jesus had to bear that cross because he was going to hang from it. That's literally what taking up a cross is. There's going to be suffering now. You're taking upon you a cross, a mark of a martyr. One who's so dedicated to something, so zealous over something, he'd die for it. <coughs> the world hated him. And man today still prefers darkness over light. If we have the victory through him, let us follow after, for we now have no more condemnation. Romans 8, verse 1.